I'm Jacob Kinberg, and you're listening to Salty Cinema. My guest today is screenwriter Todd Komarnicki. Todd wrote last year's hit, Sully, which was named one of the top ten films of the year by AFI and the National Board of Review. Sully also garnered Todd a Critics' Choice Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Through his New York-based production company, Guy Walks Into a Bar, Todd has also produced several films, including my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Elf. Here is my conversation with Todd Komarnicki. Did you feel snubbed at all by the Oscar nominations, or did you did you have any thoughts that you you would be nominated? I didn't have a single thought about being nominated through through the entire process. You know, when when the movie even first came out, you understand that the best adapted category is the the one that's stacked. Mm-hmm. I mean, pretty much every movie is adapted, and so right. therefore the best movies are going to be adapted. So I actually didn't think about it. The only thing I was disappointed was I, I do feel like we should have gotten a Best Picture nomination. I feel yeah. like we were one of the best movies of the year. I didn't think we were going to win, yeah. but I certainly thought Tom merited a nomination and and the movie. So that I felt bad for those guys, the, my producers, and for Tom, but I was not uh, expecting a nomination, so there was no snubification. <laughs> Are you, do you feel like Sully is the best thing that you've done? Is it, is it a favorite for you? Well, certainly in the film world, because most of film writing, professional film writing is heartbreaking. You know, I've written countless scripts that have never been shot. And I just had uh, my 18th pilot. I just wrote for NBC and they didn't pick it up. So mm-hmm. you get, you, I've been able to make a living. I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful, but just getting a movie made is a total miracle. So, when, when you get a movie made and it's about something really heroic and important and beautiful and it's about the best of us and it's about hope and love and kindness and humanity and uh, on top of that, Clint Eastwood directs it and Tom Hanks stars in it, it's, yeah. pretty, it's pretty hard to not have that be my favorite. Yeah. So do you have a particular um, philosophy or uh, – rules that you follow in your screenwriting that you kind of adhere to? Absolutely. I, I, it's not borrowed from anywhere. It's, it's just learned and earned, but absolutely. Uh, it, it, it depends on what part of the process you're talking about. I mean, you can ask me details. I, I, have, I do it the same way all the time. So repetition and uh, discipline are the driving forces. Well, let, let's talk first about your um, your habits in screenwriting. Uh, do you, I mean, what's, what's your typical day when you're, when you're working on a script? Well, the habits I developed are ones I'm not able to use anymore in the same structure, but without having developed those habits, I wouldn't be able to do what I do now. So this is all pre-family and post-family. Okay. They're very, very, very different life experiences as a writer. So pre-kids, it was always the same. It was get up at 8.30, coffee, breakfast, start work at 10, write from 10 to 1, take an hour break for lunch, and write from 2 to 6. Do not write on weekends. Do not write at night. Mm. 
And the reason I did that was I wanted to treat writing not as some sort of poetic uh, hanging out in a cafe with a beret on waiting for inspiration. I wanted to treat it like a lunch pail job because if this was going to be my job, I needed to be professional about it. And, and doing that for 11, 12, 13 years, not only did I get a ton of writing done, but it, it taught me that it's all about just sitting down and doing the work. Mm. Orson Welles has a great quote, which is writers are only ever doing two things, writing and not writing. Mm. And if you're not careful as a writer, you can have your not writing hours subsumed by thinking about writing or what should I do, or um, did I get it right earlier, self-editing, all these things. And you can miss your life. You can be absent from your children, absent from your wife, and you can just check out because you're always writing when you're not writing. Mm. There's also the procrastination problem. People do everything to avoid writing, and so that not writing part becomes bigger and bigger in your life. Yeah. And you can't kiss your wife thinking about it. You, you have to kiss her. Mm. So writing is, is only sitting and writing. It is, it is nothing else. So er, uh, learning that discipline early on will give you the best shot to have a career of it. Mm. Everyone, I believe, has a certain amount of bad writing in them that you have to get out. It's like if you, if you went to the gym for the first time, you're not going to lift 500 pounds. you gotta, you got to start with the dumbbells. So – Learning to write is also a process. So just writing all the time, getting that bad writing out of you, getting those muscles strengthened, that is fundamental. And most writers are in too much of a hurry to use the scratcher ticket of a screenplay and win the lottery and change their life. Right. They're, they're not in a hurry to go back and write another script or go back and rewrite this again and again. And what the thing I like to pass along the most is that when you're hired on a job and you're working and it's all going well, you're perpetually going back and back and back and back and fixing and rewriting. And it's, it's endless. So if you don't learn to do that on your own, you'll never learn to do it with mm. other people telling you. you. You'll wind up with writer fatigue, which is a, a chronic problem because on the producing side, we work with a lot of writers and it's so common that a good writer will get to the five yard line and poop out. Because they, they just never – they didn't do the reps early to get strong enough to drag themselves across the last five yards. Mm. And that's how you get fired. That's how producers decide, well, I'm not going to work with that person next time because they couldn't, they couldn't bring it all the way home. So that, that perseverance and late strength to finish sets you apart as, as a writer. And that's – I would just encourage everybody that's listening that wants to do it is to just never stop writing. So when you talk about being present with your wife in the middle of working on something, because your mind's always going, you're doing a lot of your writing when you're not sitting there actually at the keyboard, right? You're thinking through things. How, how do you turn that off? What are You just turn it off. You just turn it off. You focus. You're like, this is my wife. She loves me. I love her. This is my child. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have the luxury of drifting. When I was single, yeah, I could muse all night long, but it's not available to me. Yeah. And so it also hones the work when you're actually doing it because you know if you if you had a helicopter footage of your day as a writer as one's day as a writer you could easily cherry pick like at least two and a half hours where you were just futzing around yeah where, where you should have been focused with your writing but you were 
checking Facebook or, you know, picking your toes or thinking, you know, should I trim my beard? Like a thousand things that have nothing to do with anything. What you're doing is you're taking that time away from your family. All the time that you rob there is stolen from the people who need you later. And a coal miner is not home from work going, geez, wonder what's going to happen with that, that vein of coal tomorrow. Or I wonder about, you know, what's up with the union? No, he's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not working. I'm yeah. here. With, I'm here with my beloveds. So, you know, there's a David Mamet says there's no such thing as a writer with a happy childhood. And I read recently that there's there's no master writer, you know, like a Fitzgerald or anybody like that, who um, who ever was a good family man. And not that I'm saying I'm a master writer, far from it, but I'm trying to put the lie to both of those things mm. because I was blessed with an amazing childhood and I've been blessed with an amazing wife and children. And I'm definitely not going to let writing or, or some writing goal step on the most important things in my life, which are my faith and my family. Yeah. So talking about that, the schedule that you outlined pre-kids, um, were you were you having to work during those 13, 14 years? Were, were you were just writing, or did you have other jobs that you had to do? And what would a schedule look like differently when you have other things you have to do? I, I was crazy blessed. I got I got hired at twenty two, and they twenty nine years later they haven't kicked me out of the business yet. Wow! I never had another job. Wow, that's great. So why don't we why don't we get into that? How did you? Um, how did you first get into writing? Well, the uh, the joke is, you know, one one has one has a plan for for one's life, and it never ever pans out that way. Uh, my my plan was first to be a professional baseball player, but um, God gave me the desire, but not the legs. And, uh, <laughs> and then the uh, my next desire was to be a rock star, and God gave me the voice, but not uh, any ability to. Uh, play guitar or find bandmates. I, I came up with a couple of really cool leather jackets over the years, but uh, that was, that was it. That was the extent of my rock stardom. So um, what I found was I was ending college and I didn't know what to do. And I had a semester left and a buddy of mine said, Hey, let's make a short film. I can get art credit and, and graduate early if we just do this film together. And he said, I'll direct it and you write it. And I said, what do I write a film? What are you talking about? He said, you write poems. So I was in a poetry writing class. You know, I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's a straight. Yeah, that's the same. <laughs> Obviously. Um, really, it was because my friend was a real iconoclast and didn't have a lot of people in his life. And he was like, he chose one of the couple people near him that had once lifted a pen and said, OK, you're going to write it. And this is the, the mercy and kindness of God. I wrote with this is without question the worst short film of all time. I mean, there, there's, there's no doubt that if it was ever unearthed that um, it would be mocked eternally <laughs> on, on YouTube. And the uh, just proof of how bad it was is that it was a 51-minute short film. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, just, just painful. Anyway, we screened it. <laughs> it's so bad. We screened it for all our friends. Like 150 people came. And I don't know why their eyes didn't bleed, but they, they, they clapped at the end. And we rode that wave of applause in total obliviousness out to L.A. Wow. And I felt like this is what I'm supposed to do all of a sudden. And I sat in a furnitureless apartment in Altadena 
laying on my side, writing screenplays on legal pads and trying to train myself how to write. And the second script I wrote wound up getting discovered and it led to my first job writing a movie and one after the other. Now, when you say it got discovered, were you you were taking it around town? You, you got an no, agent with it? or more? No, I wasn't doing anything with it. My My buddy who we moved out there together, he had gotten a job at a company that was doing marketing for Disney films, like trailers and commercials and featurettes. And he was working there and they were growing and they had a desire to get into the low budget film business and they needed non-union writers. Mm. And so without telling me, he gave my second script to the head writer there. And that guy called me in for a meeting and hired me to write my first movie. And what, what kind of, what genre was that, that script in? Um, genre. It was, it was about a, a prison truck overturning on a prisoner transfer in the middle of an Indian reservation mm. and the, and the bad guys running into the Indian reservation and we sort of fade back up 10 years later. And this guy that had been a, you know, a stone cold killer and deserved to be in jail has been transformed by his life on the reservation and fall in love and as a child and the, the authorities finally figure out where he is and come to get him. And it's about it's cowboys versus Indians. Yeah, and it's, about, it's about the Indians standing up to defend him. Interesting. So, what gave you the confidence to write? What made you think that you could do it? <laughs> I've always had sort of a dopey confidence. The, um, you know, what what's funny is at the beginning, before I was writing novels, because I published a few novels, I told myself, well, I'm not a real writer, so I I can't write a book. I wouldn't give myself permission to write a book. But I'll write a movie because that's not real writing. That's, you know, anybody can do that. And, of course, you discover that it's the opposite. It's actually, I think, I think significantly harder to write a good screenplay than it is to write a book. And the, uh, the confidence that I gained in having to storytell within an architectural structure, mm. the demands of screenwriting actually made me a much better writer on all levels and a much better storyteller. So that when I wrote my books, I knew I had freedom. I wasn't tied to the act structures or anything. Mm -hmm. But my storytelling chops were sharper than a normal novel writer because I was driven by filmic storytelling. So they both helped me immensely. How has uh, what's expected from a screenplay changed through the years um, in terms of do the people that are reading, producers and stuff – um, studio heads do they want clever descriptions and wordplay in that is it supposed to be more literary now than it was before are they just all about plot what would you say the the best way you know the, the perfect scripts that are still the model all come from the 70s um, you know french connection three days of the condor the parallax view hmm. that um, Manchurian candidate is earlier classic three act structure. You, you know, people don't have patience to read description. So you gotta, you gotta less is always more, but because I love writing, I always take time to make the description catchy, but very tight hmm. because I do find that people notice, right. you know, when a small description, they'll tend to read it. And if it's, if it's catchy, they'll remember it. And I have people mention executives say, oh, you're more fun to read 
because mm-hmm. of your description. So I do give merit to writing good description, but it's got to be taught, you know, mm-hmm. a line yeah. or two at most. And then Young always over explaining. They're always mm-hmm. talking about the internal state of the character in three or four lines when you can do it with just a, a flick of the wrist. And because stuff gets rewritten so much in the in the process, do you think if you're if you're coming to the table with an incredibly original story that the dialogue might not be there all the way or whatever, they'll still be interested in it? Or would you say it still needs to be a complete package? Complete package. Complete package. Yeah, because you don't want to be fired. And yeah. people give up on a script, you know, if, if the dialogue is not realistic. And the, the rule we have in-house, Jonathan Coleman runs my company, and, and nothing goes out the door until he's kicked my ass all over the place on mm. the, get me to fix stuff. And the rule we have is every scene has to be as good as the best scene. Mm. That's tough. Yeah. And when you're young, you tend to think, oh, there's three – three showpiece scenes and this is a great action moment and that's a great romantic moment, but the reader won't get to it if they're not pulled along. Every, every script has to be a page turner. Hmm. Are you, is that something that is hard for you to be um, hard on yourself and know, like, I think this script is ready, but then he comes and he's like, no, it's not even close. And, or is that something you have kind of self self policing? I'm so grateful for it. He's been with me nine years and it's definitely upped my game significantly. Mm. And he, uh, you know, I don't take every note he gives, but it leads to great discussions. And the best thing is if he's not satisfied with something, even if he can't articulate it, I know I haven't done my job yet. Mm. And that is, it forces me to try to improve all the time. Yeah. In early on in your career, would you say you were that disciplined for yourself and in, in reworking stuff over and over until it was ready? Or would you send stuff I tried, out? I, I tried to be, and you have a group of friends that are okay at notes or whatever, but having Jonathan, I always tell young writers, try to find that producer, try to find that set of eyes that just elevates you because you need it. You know, writers in television have it because there's a writer's room and things get worked over and jokes get worked over. And, you know, you got a whole bunch of people laying their hands on it. Sometimes that's, not better, but at least you know you got a lot of backstops. But it's too easy to convince yourself as a screenwriter that it's ready, it's good, it's great. When we're producing stuff, even from writers I love, when they send me an email saying, oh, it's ready, it's like, it's not up to you to decide if it's ready. Hmm. You can say, here it is. I think it's ready. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I hope you think it's ready. But they've set up an expectation for themselves where they're trying to block doing more work instead of being excited for what the next set of notes will do to make it even that much better. Hmm. If you're going to be precious about your words, if, if, if you're going to be precious about your approach, write plays or books. But if you're writing a movie, you have to understand that collaboration is the key and surrounding yourself by, by smart people that have good notes and are thoughtful being open and collaborative. These are the way you keep getting jobs. People will remember enjoying working with you. Hmm. Um, so you you live in New York now, but you you said you originally you went out to L.A. When did you when did you go out to New York? I've been here twenty three years now. Okay. Yeah, as soon as I could afford to move back to New York, I came back to New York. And 
is there a difference in being a part of the industry in in LA and in New York that, that you see? A hundred percent. Yeah, there is no industry in New York. I mean, there are a couple of cool companies here, but they're indie companies, and the studios have offices here. But it, it's not um, New York is not a movie town. So none of the people that we know are in the movie business. I never have to talk about what I do ever. <laughs> and um, and my, my wife is, is usually not interested until it's really real because there's so much – it's so nebulous and there's so much almost and if this and if that. It, it makes the person crazy and it's really, really tough to be married to a dreamer. So I wind up not talking about my work. I just do the work and I've got Jonathan and, and Seth in, in the office and we – we talk things through, but I'm unburdened by the weight of having to be in the business. In L.A., everybody's in the business. Wherever you go, you're talking about it, and there's no escape. And I've, that's just too much for me. I'm not mm-hmm. that interested in it. <laughs> I'm interested in, in getting better at my job and telling stories, but I'm not that interested in the business side of it. So mm-hmm. I much prefer our, our quiet life in New York. So after you sold that, that first script in L.A., what, what was the next – what was the next few years for you in LA like? I got uh, I got a couple of script deals. I got signed by CAA, and then I realized, oh my goodness, they don't make these movies they buy. This is a terrible thing because I thought that's part of the confidence slash cockiness. I, I just thought, okay, well, look, it happened for me right away. Now I'm off and running. So I decided to go write a book. I wrote, wrote my first book. That was the advance for that book allowed me to move to New York, which was wonderful. Mm. But then when that book came out and nobody beside my parents and sisters bought it at the local Barnes and Noble, um, you realize, oh, this is you got to make a living at this. How do you do that? Oh, okay, better go back to the movies. So um, I I interspersed a few novels over the years, but really the the bread and butter has always been movies. And I love movies. I love screen storytelling. It's fascinating. So would you say that that Elf was your kind of big breakout movie? Or did you have some, anything before that that kind of put you on the map? No, I mean, they're making the movie that put me on the map right now, Professor and the Madman. I, I wrote that adaptation in uh, 1998. Okay. And even though the movie didn't get made until just now, it opened every door. Okay. I mean, that was, and I, and I, that was pretty much, like, that was the end of any sort of dry spells once, mm. once I'd written Professor and the Madman. So that was a huge blessing. Hmm. Elf was a producing thing. So what's funny is that it gave us immense producing opportunities, but so many that for a period of five years, my writing went down to like 20% of my output because I was so busy reading scripts and meetings and setting stories and producing is completely consuming. Hmm. And on the other side of that, I made my, you know, after the writer's strike, I made my life a lot smaller and we used to have a couple offices and eight people working and, and it was, I was not getting a lot of writing done. So it's actually since the writer strike been much easier, really focused on my writing, really focused on my New York life. I used to be in LA four months of the year and now I'm maybe there two weeks. Hmm. Well, so obviously elf is a Christmas classic. Now it's a, it's an every year thing. Uh, everyone loves it. How did you, how did you come up with elf? It was just as we planned. We knew that we were a <laughs> classic for the ages. Um, it's so surreal that it, that it landed in the culture the way it did. I mean, we, just, we had no idea. Uh, David Barenbaum wrote Elf. He's from Northeast Philadelphia. He's just the nicest man. I love him so much. And he, he is Jewish, 
and he grew up in a neighborhood where every Christmas the the trees and the lights and every street he drove down said Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. And then he went home and he had his menorah and he didn't have Christmas and it put a deep ache in his heart. Mm. So like everything, I'm going to be a little uh, profane here for a second, but <laughs> flowers grow in shit. The, the only the only way anything grows is something bad has to happen. It's just the, the way it is. So this young boy who's heartbroken every Christmas turns out to be the guy who wrote Elf. He his, The first three scripts he wrote when he moved to L.A. were all Christmas movies. He was wow. just so touched by it. And John Berg, my producing partner, got a hold of uh, Elf early on, and then we developed it and shaped it and, and uh, brought Will Ferrell on, set it up a new line. took many years, but somehow it all cohered and hmm. John Favreau did an amazing job directing it and we wound up with something people still love. Was that your first foray into into producing or were, had well, you done the first made movie? I mean we we'd been producing you, you develop, you know, you always have like 15 20 projects because nothing ever gets made. It yeah. used to be when I when I started in the business in 88 10% of scripts for hire or purchased specs became movies. And there were a lot of script sales, but still only 10%. Now there are very few script sales. The studios develop almost nothing. And there's probably 2% mm. of that that becomes movies. So getting, getting a movie made, man, <laughs> never think about that. Only think about writing the best possible script. And, uh, and and starting to have a professional career mm. because getting a movie made is just such a, it's such a mad dream. Now that you're in the position that you are though, do you, I assume there are those passion things that you like, before you would write something and you're at the mercy of someone else of someone else getting it made. Now you're kind of in a position you can write what you want and get it made if you're also a producer yourself. Is that yeah, true? Or? I, especially, I mean, especially as a Christian, the way I look at my life, I don't think about about someone else being in control or me being in control. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly I'm in a better spot on the other side of Sully being successful than I was before Sully came out. So that's great. I mean, I'm really appreciative of that. But it doesn't give me a magic wand. And I, I live my life by faith and, and surrender everything. I want God's plan, not my plan. I know that a studio executive is not the gatekeeper of my destiny. But I also know that I'm not the controller of my destiny either. So the only thing I can do is is honor the gifts God gave and work really hard. Listen you know, intensely about what I should be working on or where to apply pressure or focus and try to make movies that matter. You know, a movie like Sully, audiences are hungry for true life stories, they're hungry for like hidden figures, they're hungry for movies that have uplift. The studios are not really making those movies, but it doesn't mean you can't find someone to pay you to write one and it doesn't mean you should give up fighting to get those movies made. But I, I'm not going to fool myself and say that I have any more quote-unquote power. It, mm. It's just um, just trying to live a surrendered, open-handed, open-hearted life. Yeah. Um, so when you're, when you're deciding on the projects that you want to pursue, it's a heavy uh, lot of prayer, really trying to hear 
what what God wants you to be working on? Always, always, and then throughout the process, and again and again, and it's interesting. I just finished a movie that is now um, they're 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 trying to cast a, a movie for Sony, and part of my struggle with that was I had I had taken the job in sort of a flurry. Um, I I I was offered the chance to pitch for the job. This is before Sully came out. And I sent the material to Jonathan and Jonathan said, you've got to try for this. It really moved him. Hmm. So sort of on that energy and trust, I was like, okay, I'll whip together. I put together a pitch. Uh, I didn't have much time. I literally only had one day to put the pitch together. I pitched it and I got the job on the phone. Hmm. And then I sent the pitch to Jonathan and he was like, I already knew I loved this, but now reading your pitch, this is our favorite. This is my favorite project. Wow. And I was like, okay, now it wasn't mine. And during the process of writing it, I found that because it was not mine, it was missing something. It was good, but I couldn't figure out what the why of the movie was. I couldn't get it. And prayer and weeks and rewriting. And then very, very late in the game, I would even say, during the final rewrite for the studio, I finally saw why. I finally got it. Hmm. The, the movie, it's a true story, but I finally understood that the, the movie was not about achieving dreams or excellence or whatever. The movie was about healing. And the only way we get healed of any past pain is by total surrender. Now, I had not seen that because the story is not about a guy of faith. But, of course, he's a human being. Mm-hmm. So the same rules apply. So he, had, he was. He was healed by surrender. And only when I peeled all that back and then, and then I was like, oh, I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. I know how to write that feeling because I've been healed by surrender. So then it, I was able to infuse the final draft he didn't become a different person. He's still him. He's not, you know, at St. Patrick's Cathedral going, I get it. Thank you, God. There's nothing that none of that. But the bloodstream of the movie was suddenly fortified by, by the thematic thing that I had not found until the very end. And now when people are reading it, they're getting that. I mean, right Mm -hmm. away it's like, this is amazing. He's healed by the, you know, (laughs) the thing I couldn't find. That's the reaction to the script. It's like, wow, this movie is great. It's about being healed by Mm. Like, okay, good. <laughs> you never know when it's going to come. Yeah. Have you, do you think there's been any projects that you did pursue for the wrong reasons or that you think maybe you, you shouldn't have worked on that? Um, you know, it's, it's ironic. The, the movie that sort of broke my heart the most was, was Perfect Stranger, which was, you know, the movie that was made was not, similar to the script i I don't need Mm. to go into why but okay much of much of the work and the quality of the script was not filmed Mm. and then i took all the battering for it and you know the movie's not atrocious but it's not anywhere what it could have been and it's not very deep or meaningful and so i did have a lot of conversations with like you know why that one when there were so many other ones that that mattered or, or would have worked in the culture you know there's a mystery of life i don't know why it goes the way it goes but that was the case but perfect stranger 
through residuals and through its continued life wound up being this huge support during some quiet times. Um, after the writer's strike, you know, we, we hadn't worked for all the producing money dried up because the studios did that. And then I hadn't written for months. So suddenly you get a residual check from this movie that you were pretty disappointed by. And all you can say is, wow, thank you, God. Thank you. I, I, I don't know what was at work there, but there's no question. I was blessed on the other side of, of the disappointment and it was a sustaining thing. And so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, aside from that, and I'm not sorry I took that job. I took it because Julia Roberts was attached yeah. and I thought, you know, I'll go write a Julia Roberts movie. So I'm not sorry I took the job. Aside from that, it's, it's pretty easy to tell what you want to work on. Now, I'm not chasing any of the Marvel movies. I can enjoy them, but they're not, I'm not interested in writing them. And anything super dark or, you know, manipulative, exploitive, those things don't, don't call my name. I'm never going to write a horror movie. And on the comedy side, producing, we just we avoid the comedy of humiliation. We we try to tell stories that are great stories, but also are rooted in heart, like Elf. So, I I you know our slate is a blessing as opposed to oh geez, I don't want to go look at that project. Mm-hmm. Are you um, what What are your thoughts on the next ten to twenty years of the film industry? Do you see it? Um, dying. I, I've been reading a lot of articles lately about the the end of movies coming, and you know everything is you know there's so many different uh, with Netflix and TV kind of becoming intertwined with movies, and it's all just going to be media online in different forms. For me, I still I just I love movies. I love the two hour form of storytelling and I, I don't want it to go away. And it, I, I kind of want to be one of the last holdouts. How do you feel about the future? It seems like the movie going experience that the theater owners are very keenly aware that it needs to be special. Mm. So they keep retrofitting. Now it's recliners and, uh, you know, feed up and food service and these I pick theaters that are popping up around the country. So I think sort of the high end $20 ticket, go have a full movie going experience. Like you're going to the theater mm. or you're going to a ball game. I think that's going to proliferate and I think it's still going to exist and it's going to be, there are going to be movies that are targeted for that. You certainly can't make Avengers and put it on a, on a small screen. People will watch it on a small screen, but it's made for the big screen. Mm. So as long as, as long as Disney and Warner are, are getting their bread and butter from those kind of movies, there will be cinema. The brain drain towards television away from writing movies is that's real. You know, Steve Zalian goes and does the night of because that's who's going to let him tell his story as opposed to him rewriting for a million dollars a week again Mm -hmm. and again and again, and not being able to really put his imprint. So yeah, TV is going to have the best and brightest and that will continue. But Netflix, there's a little cannibalization going on. There's going to be this ongoing fight with cable and, there's going to be so much content. How much quality content can people take in? How many House of Cards, Bloodline, Vikings, you know, Game of Thrones? How, how much can a person consume mm-hmm. and interact with? I, there will be a tipping point where you're just like, it's too much. I can't, I can't take in anymore. And there will be a diminishing of, of the of diminishing and or fracturing of the audience. And the content funders will say 
geez, we can't afford to spend eleven million dollars an episode. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna make it smaller. Less people are watching. They're only watching on their phones. So there there are changes afoot. I don't think they're gonna happen tonight. But the the best news is that the people that run the corporations recognize that quality content still is what is the bedrock of their companies. Mm. That's, that's what they need. Yes. There's YouTube. Yes. There's cat crotch videos. Yes. There's all that kind of stuff that's free and, and gets a trillion views. But in the end, the identity of, of a company is built on their tent poles. Mm. And because those are all giant, even though I'm not a fan of comic book movies in general, because they're all so giant, that has to be serviced. And that means you need infrastructure, and it means you need to make other movies. Um, have you been a Christian your entire time working in the industry? When when did you come to Christ? Yeah, in my uh, in my early twenties. Okay. So right right before I started. Yeah, it's funny because people ask me, "What's it like being a Christian in the movie business?" And I'm like, "I don't know what it's like to not be a Christian in the movie business." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how to compare. Yeah, and you you talked about how your faith has an impact on the kind of stories that you want to tell. Does it have an impact on what you will watch as a, as a viewer? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, but, I can't, I can't look at horror movies. I can't, I just, I try to avoid the, the dark, but I certainly don't avoid the sad Manchester by the sea is as about as grueling a m- movie experience as you can have. And it, it's an exquisite work of art. Hmm. So yeah, I'm uh I'm not a soft touch. I'll, I'll, I'll watch the, uh, you know, I'm not watching Hallmark Hall of Fame at night. What are your views on, on nudity in film? On nudity in film? What an interesting question. Um, huh, I don't know if I have an overall view. I would, I would say, for the most part, probably the way it's used is just for titillation and exploitation and to get a rating in a, in a kid's comedy, a PG 13 or, you know, like when, not when you were growing up, but when I was growing up movies like Porky's and Mm. this is just, you know, it was a a way to get eyeballs in, in the seat. It was never tied to character or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I would imagine that if, if shame or, uh, power or some storytelling tool were, were necessary for, a moment to tell a story that there would be, there might be reason for it. But I think for the most part it it's there as an add on, but mm. I wouldn't just say it shouldn't exist. I mean, it, it would be a case by case thing. Mm. I'm what? a big fan of profanity in movies because <laughs> real, real people curse. Right. And when movies pretend that real people don't curse, they sound like they're not real people. And that's bad. One one of the reasons I ask is um, it you seems, have a lot of nudity in your movies. I too. yeah, I really I love nudity. I gotta have it. Uh, <laughs> I feel bad about it as a Christian, uh, but it seems to me that the most po- you know the stuff that I love a lot of times I can't watch because and especially with like HBO shows, it seems like there's like a mandate if you are, have a show a drama on HBO, you must have boobs at least once in every episode or you know yeah, like see, that's really that's really silly i can't speak i don't know the the creators of that show but if i was creating if i was running that show and they were like you have to have the gratuitous scene in there because i would have an argument with that yeah i don't i don't like, obviously i don't know if, yeah no, i don't know if they're actually 
actually what you know putting a mandate down but that's just what it feels like every drama and then it's the same thing on netflix now too it seems like most dramas have gratuitous stuff in them that i don't know you know th- that's the adult dramas that i want to watch and a lot of times it's like uh i don't know because it's i gotta <laughs> i gotta I don't know. I don't shield my H- eyes the whole time i don't have hbo so i, I don't uh, i'm not afraid of seeing yeah nudity but you don't you don't think in uh, with being a Christian that there is any kind of you know what you're line there. This is not just about nudity; it's about a lot of things. There's there, there are things that there are humiliations and control and and snarkiness and awfulness that yeah. is worse than nudity. You know, someone walking across the screen. There's awful things that people do to each other in all sorts of movies. Yeah. So it's not just about that. It's that's too that's too simple to plant a flag there because it's mm. so obvious. But I would say, what is the soul? What is the integrity? What is the truth of the story? Because there are, there are movies that have been, you know, quote-unquote Christian movies that are deeply offensive on every level without a curse word or any nudity, deeply offensive. Right. Because they, they take the almighty God and turn him into a conversation point or, you know, something really sentimental, everything that he's not. Mm-hmm. So that's offensive. I'd rather have someone yell a profanity. Right. Uh, it's usually me yelling at profanity at them. <laughs> um, I, I want to get back to Sully. Um, the structure of Sully is so interesting and kind of, kind of amazing. It, it, it blew me away how you d- structured that. And I, I wonder, I didn't read the script, so I, I wondered how much of that was in editing and how much uh, was in your script. All scripted. Okay. And how, yeah. how did you kind of come up with the way to tell that story in that manner? Well, when you have a story that everybody thinks they know and it lasts seven minutes, then you better figure out some kind of storytelling technique to, mm. to guide people through the story and the thrills. And I have this theory. I don't know if you've heard. I've talked about this in the, in the press over this fall. Um, I have a storytelling technique that I've used off and on called the eternal now. And... For a subjective story, it works really well. So the eternal now is everything that's ever happened to you, Jacob, everything that's ever happened to me, we have brought to this conversation. Some we bear physical scars from, you know, oh, I ran into that fence or I was hit by that car. Most we are not in touch with accessing, but is in there and could be triggered by an aroma or a comment or a song. But it's all in there, our whole human experience up to this point. Now there's this moment between you and I. We've never met before, so we're just interacting. And then there's how this moment impacts the future. So it's always eternally now. When I'm writing an eternal now script, all you have to do is put in the camera direction a slow push into the central character. Um, You can drift past their shoulder. As long as you're going into that character you can go anywhere in their memory slipstream you want to their childhood to a fear to a dream anywhere as long as you come back out of the same spot if you come back out of the same spot you close the loop and what you've done is instead of alienating the audience via flashback you've had this intimate moment between the character the actor the story and the audience and that's why everyone's on Sully's side. No one thought of Sully as anything but a hero. But as this guy falls apart, because we've been going on this eternal now journey with him throughout, 
we're nervous, we're broken. And when he hears 155 for the first time, we cry, even though we know everybody lived because we're so in link with him now. Mm. And of course, it takes a great actor to really carry this off. But that that structure was there from, you know, from five years ago when the script was done. Mm. Did you, when you were first kind of approaching him as a character, did you have trouble kind of figuring out what his what his flaw was like because he seems like a on the page like oh he's just a hero guy who did this great thing like how did you know how did you kind of find that this is what's going to be his struggle this is going to be the the arc for him just spending time with the guy and you know it's not in his book but what the investigation did to him the wear and tear and how it actually played out had never been in the press so the, the producers and myself were the first people he ever told and when you have that, you see, you see, it's not about being a hero. It's about there was a line in, in a draft earlier. It didn't make it into the final draft, but where his wife says, you know, now all we have to do is survive surviving. Because what happened to them, it was it was giant. It was momentous. You got famous while they're being investigated. The more famous they got, the closer they got to losing everything. They were separated. They couldn't get together. He was falling apart physically. His whole life had been about control and excellence, and now he had neither. They wouldn't mm. let him fly, couldn't make any money. Mm. So that was uh, a lot of water uh, eroding a life's work, and it was just water falling down onto him. And when you have that as a, a center of your story, you have a lot to a lot to share with people. So, but were you you were already pursuing doing a telling his story without kind of knowing that, right? You're saying when you talked to him, you kind of found that out. What, After what, I got the job. So what was what was that, uh, without knowing that, what was that initial interest in telling his story for you? Well, because the event was a sig- singular New York story. It was a happy story with a plane in it. That's, that's laced throughout. Like being a New Yorker and living here, you just, I still marvel at the fact that no one hesitated to go rescue Mm. There's not one person on the ferry, the captains, the scuba cops, not one that hesitated. And that's the, another big reason that they did it in 24 minutes and everybody lived. They easily could have said, you know what? It could be terrorism. There could be a bomb on that plane. Let's hold back. Let's wait. Let's send in some sensors. Let's go slow. There was no fear. It was just heroism. I love that. So mm. I wanted to tell that story right away. I wanted to tell the whole story of the thing. And then reading Sully's book, you, you feel for the guy. He's a, he's a man who has aimed for excellence his entire life, which is very noble. And he's an appealing guy. So marrying those two things, even before I knew the secrets behind it, made me want to tell the story. When I got the treasure trove of the secrets, I was like, Oh my goodness. I can, (laughs) yeah, that that helps. Um, do you have a a favorite movie from this past year or some of your your favorites well with two kids seven and four we saw storks three times you know we saw <laughs> dory four times it's like uh, the ubo twice so the uh the bulk of my movie going has been animated manchester by the sea was the best drama that i saw but i have not seen all of the ones that are out there and, and so beloved uh so i would just go with the animated movies i mean finding dory made me cry my eyes out Mm. Uh, Moana was tip terrific and Kubo was really good. It was sort of all over the map philosophically, but it was really interesting, very mm. inventive and creative and, and beautiful. So I enjoyed that movie a lot. 
So yeah, I can um, I can give you a family guide, <laughs> not the not the grown up guide. Um, do you, um, being a Christian and seeing what people are doing on the faith based side of the industry, do you have any um, thoughts on things you would want to see going on uh, creatively with? people that are making movies like that? Do you think they shouldn't be making movies like that at all? What, what are your thoughts no, on that? No, I, I mean, people follow their own muse, their own place in the world. I would just say, tell the truth. I mean, my, my only frustration with Christian anything is that whenever we're trying to find a place in the culture, you know, put us, put us up there on the, on the shelf as part of other things and then, you know, look at us or we're just serving a certain audience. And, you know, I just think that's a fundamental mistake because I believe in the God of the universe. I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, that is an all encompassing thing that, that is not, Jesus did not come to be part of a culture. He did not come to be one among many. And if you believe that he is one who he says he is, then you don't have to be apologetic about it. That that's, you know, trying to, I think we're on the back foot and we should be people of the resurrection and be yeah. brave and courageous and fearless and tell the truth. And I think I know the kind of movies Jesus would like if he were here. You know, I think he'd be much more interested in, in Lion and, and Manchester by the Sea uh, than he would be in a movie that's got no cursing mm-hmm. and, uh, and no nudity. <laughs> Have you written any stories uh, about uh, any characters that that were Christian? Yeah, the professor and the madman is is rooted in that. We'll see. I've been I've, I've been rewritten by the director, so I don't know how close the my script is to the finished movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, Professor Murray, who created the Oxford English Dictionary, was a profound Christian man, amazing guy. Every decision he made was rooted in Christ. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got to write that. And last year I wrote a movie for Warner Brothers. We're still looking for a director on it, which is King David. And that is wall-to-wall scripture and wall-to-wall journey of a man um, and wrestling with his relationship with God. So, yeah, that's the the most overt. Awesome. What what was your angle on the King David story? I mean, it's it's been done so many times. It's not been done. It's never, it's never been done. It's only been done poorly in the Richard Gere Swords and Sandals movie from 1985. It's never been given the real cinematic uh, treatment. Okay. Uh, from 16 to 57, from um, you know his, uh, his calling and, and David and Goliath to a key battle against the relatives of Goliath, the survivors of Goliath. And the central question of the movie is, can you do so much that you finally ultimately cut yourself off from God? Hmm. Because David did a lot of amazing things, but he did a lot of terrible things too. And so um, on the other side of Bathsheba, on the other side of his accumulation of sins, his question to the prophet Nathan, which is brackets the movie, like five scenes with Nathan throughout the movie. His question is, have I moved beyond redemption? Hmm. Has God turned his back on me? And I don't want to give away the ending, but you and I know how we feel about God turning his back. He, he, is, a, he is a last minute God. 
he is a God of uh, choosing people like Paul to to lead the charge. He does not give up on people. Hmm. So that that's what that uh, is at the root of the King David movie. Hmm. It's the gospel. Now I just I want to say one more thing about the nudity issue, just because I I I, I, I have I have thought about this a lot, and here's here's a distinction for me that I, I'm curious what you would say about being a filmmaker. Everything else in a movie, language, violence, the kind the other things that you were kind of listing, um, it's it's not actually happening. It's a it's a fictional thing that is being created for the screen, right? When you, um, you're have, talking to me like I've shot a bunch of nude scenes. No, so no, 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 I'm just, I've never done any. I've never. I've but, never but I, this is what this is just what I think about as a viewer, as a Christian viewer. You may it. be thinking about it too much, Jacob. Possibly, possibly, <laughs> it's my wife's fault. But someone had to be there, uh, exposing themselves in front of a hundred people on a film set. Maybe, maybe two or three doesn't really matter. But anyway, they have to be naked in real life on set for that image to be created for other people to to view. And there's something about that that makes me uncomfortable for what has to happen in order to create the image that makes it kind of different. I don't disagree with that. Okay. It's just not something I've ever run into. There's not a lot of nudity in Elf. <laughs> But I'm asking you as a viewer of it. I just don't think about it. I don't come across it that much. I don't, you know, I'm not looking at pornography, so I don't, I don't really. Well, that, I guess that's the other question. Like, how would you, how would you make the distinction? You know, I mean, I like. Again, case by case. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just curious. That's the only reason I'm at. I'm just curious what your it's thoughts are. It's not something are. that's front of mind for me, so. Okay. It would, <laughs> um. Well, I think I think we did good here. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. I feel it. naked. I feel emotionally <laughs> naked after that call. <laughs>